You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. So the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. Welcome. It's good to see all of you. For those that are back, Uh, From summer breaks, maybe if you're in college, welcome back to you. Uh, Again, always uh, welcome to those who are new here at Park Church. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We'd love, after the service, if you're looking for more ways to get involved or if you want to know any more about who we are as a church or how to get more involved in our community, but also in the mission that God's given us as a church. We have a meeting right after the service designed for you. Uh, In this back corner of what we call the gallery, there's a sign that says, new here, and we have about a 10-minute meeting to get to know you a bit and help you find some more ways to get involved in our church family. So we'd love to get to know you uh, if that would be helpful for you. We are in our second week uh, of our annual series where we recenter on our mission as a church. Uh, We find just as human beings, uh, we have just kind of a propensity to forget the big picture. And we often kind of settle into routines and habits, whether healthy or unhealthy, but we lose the why. We lose the kind of center of why do we do this? Why are you here today? Why do we care about following Jesus? Why does it matter? What's the mission God's given us in the world? How do we understand our role in that mission? And so every year in the fall, we just recenter as a church. We don't try to reinvent the wheel. We don't try to create kind of our own new clever ideas. We just go back to what Jesus called us to as his people, what he's called his people to for generations, for centuries, for millennia. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, And as we do that, again, I just feel the need uh, to invite us to kind of slow down, take a breath, and remember that God is with us, that God is with us. And so we're going to just pause for a moment and just be still, maybe take a few breaths and remember as we gather here on a Sunday morning with things flying through our minds, meeting people, getting connected, coming into a space, maybe you're new and you feel some vulnerability, uh, wherever you're at, you can just slow down and know that the God of the universe is with us. So let's just take a couple moments and pause and then we'll ask God to speak to us this morning. Jesus, we ask that you would help us even now um, to not just in our heads, but in the depth of our being to know that you're with us. You promised uh, to your people, said I'm with you 
always, all the time, even to the end of the age. And so we, we want to believe that to be true, but our hearts are really prone to forget. Uh, we get distracted and we often uh, kind of push you out of the reality of our lives. And even on a Sunday morning, it's so easy to kind of go through the motions and forget that you're here and you want to speak to us. You want to heal things within us. You want to awaken people to life and to your love. You want to transform parts of our lives where we've been tripping up and stumbling. You want to bring forgiveness and grace. You want to draw near to us as we draw near to you. So would you help us, Holy Spirit, this morning to draw near to you, to receive your grace, to hear your gracious invitation, and to learn to follow your ways, that we would have life to the full. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you weren't here last year, we made a, a big announcement. We, we changed our mission as a church recently entirely. Uh, we now, as a church, no longer exist to make disciples. We exist to make tapioca. Uh, we exist to make tapioca, which is like a Brazilian crepe. It's a new thing. And uh, when I said a moment ago that we don't rethink things that often, I lied. This year, we're totally changing it. Uh, we're making Brazilian crepes as a church. And, uh, and when I say that, it kind of raised questions last week. Uh, questions like, what's tapioca, and why would we make it? And, and for those that got on board, when you're like, now that I know what it is, and now I see how much joy it would give me and the world, I'm in, but how? How do we make it, right? And, and the reason why we talked about that as a church is because when we think about making disciples, for some people it's as foreign and as like odd as the idea of making tapioca. We often don't understand what it means to make disciples. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? If we were all about making disciples, then it'd be important to understand why. Why should we care? Why should we care about being a disciple of Jesus? Why should we care about helping others grow as disciples of Jesus? And if we were on board with all of that, we'd have to begin to ask, how? How? Uh, Jesus gave us a really clear commission uh, as his people. We call it the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew, before he ascended into heaven, he sent us out as his people, and he said, go, therefore, into all nations, make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe, to obey, or to follow all the things that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always. He gave us that commission and we had to kind of back up and say, what is a disciple? Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? If you're coming here from any other church background, you might have some preset ideas, some presuppositions about what a disciple is. Uh, if you're here, just quick pause. Hold on, time out. Time out. Neil Long's back from sabbatical. Can we welcome Neil Long? Also, also late coming into the sanctuary, clearly, so. <laughs> no big deal. No, it's good to, good to have Neil back. Um, yeah, I just saw you and I got happy just seeing you in the, in the room, so. Um, good to have you back. So we're talking about what is a disciple? What does it mean? You come with all these preset ideas, all these kind of preconceptions of what a disciple might be, and we need to kind of look at God's word and understand that the idea of a disciple had a very kind of core understanding in first century Judaism. There was an idea of what a disciple was in Greco-Roman culture. There's an idea of what a disciple was in Jewish culture in the first century. And it was really this idea of being an apprentice, that somebody would be kind of essentially applying kind of the best of the best in Jewish society, would apply to become the disciple of a rabbi. And that would be, in a sense, uh, 
asking them, we want to follow you around, we want to learn your ways, we want to be with you and follow your way of life, and we want to extend your teaching. In the first century, disciples would essentially look for the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the people who had the most Bible memorized, the people who were the most righteous, the most obedient to all the rules of first century Judaism, the cream of the crop, and they look around at all these applicants, and they find the best ones, the ones that they thought, you know, these are the ones who are really going to represent me well and represent these ideas well. And they would welcome them or admit them into this new relationship as a disciple. Once they were in that relationship, they would have the ability and they would be invited to be with their rabbi and to follow their rabbi's way of life. To be with them, to hang out with them, to watch the way they live when they wake up in the morning, to watch the way they operate through the day, watch the way they eat and drink, listen to the way they teach, listen to the way they engage with the poor or the marginalized, watch the way they live, watch the way they respond when they make mistakes, watch the way they respond when other people make mistakes, watch the way they think about work, watch the way they think about family or marriage or sexuality, watch the way they think about money and life and recreation, watch the way they think about different cultures and different ethnicities, watch the way they do all of these things, and in a sense, watch the way they navigate life and, and model their life around that. So they're going to be with them, follow them around, and then they're going to follow their way of life. And in that first century model, the way they talked about this way of life, the way you navigate life, the image that was used was that of a yoke, a yoke. And it's essentially how do you carry the burdens of life? So there are a couple different kinds of yoke in the first century. There were yoke that oxen would pull, where you'd have a couple oxen. Uh, is that right? Oxen. Yeah, there we go. Um, a couple oxen, and they'd get in this yoke, and they'd pull. But also human beings would have a yoke. How would they carry water back from a well? They'd have a yoke over their shoulders with buckets of water. How would they bring things back from the market? They'd have a yoke in different ways to carry the burdens of life. And so a yoke was how do you navigate life? And all of these rabbis in the first century had an approach to how they navigated life. For the Jewish rabbis, their approach was based on their interpretation of God's instructions. So the way it came to be understood is how do you interpret God's wisdom for life and how do you apply that in the everyday? That was the yoke. In the first century, that way of life was crushing people. The predominant yoke, the predominant way of carrying the burdens of life was putting on people a burden that was beating them down. They were weary, they were beat down, they were crushed, they were depleted, they were withering. And Jesus entered into that scene to offer a different way to live. A different way to live. And I think it's incredibly relevant for us today because I think the way our society approaches life is beating people down. It's leading to weariness, anxiety, depression, a sense of withering, a sense of purposelessness, a sense of hopelessness. And that basic emotional experience is true all around this room. All around this room. Behind the mask of the people sitting around you, in front of you, and behind you, for many of us, for many of us, there's a weariness, there's a sense of depletion, there's a baseline of anxiety, There's some depression that lingers. There's some numbness, complacency. When we come into the room and we sing these songs of joy, there's joy in the house of the Lord. There is. There really is a kind of joy when we gather together in God's presence. But there is also, in the house of the Lord today, weariness. 
and pain and hurt and fear. It exists, and Jesus comes into this world with an invitation, and this invitation has become known as the great invitation, and it's here in Matthew chapter 11, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, a passage that has meant more to me or as much to me as any other passage in the Bible. We revisit often, revisit it often as a church because of how core it is to this understanding. And so what I want to do is read this invitation to you, but I want you to hear it not merely as kind of a, a scripture passage to a people long ago, but I want, I want you to hear in this invitation, Jesus looking at you and looking into this space and this room to people that feel weary, weathered, anxiety, a witheringness to life, maybe some depression, some fears, insecurities, shame you might be carrying. And into that space, hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my way of navigating life, is easy. The burden, when you carry my yoke, the burden is light. This is the invitation that Jesus offers us. He looks at a space like this. He looks at people who in our, in our world are busy in like this sort of like lifestyle improvement schema where like you're, you think the, the way to joy, the way to flourishing is like slightly improve your lifestyle, just a little more. Whatever your preferred lifestyle is, there's different ways to slice it, different values and priorities, but it's slightly improve your family, slightly improve your job, slightly improve your friendship, slightly improve your car, slightly improve your house, slightly improve your recreational habits, slightly improve your fitness regime, slightly improve whatever, just, just a little bit better a little bit further, a little bit more. Not there yet, no, no worries. Just a little bit better, a little bit more, a little further along. Still not there? Just a little bit more, a little bit more. And some of you are young enough to still like believe it, you know, and then, and then you kind of hit midlife and you're like, well, that didn't work, you know. I haven't, you know, 15 years, 16, 17 years of like slightly trying to improve my family. And you're just like, we're still just people and still uh, working and struggling through the same things still feel, feeling the weariness? You look at the people that are way ahead of you and you're like, certainly they arrived. And you talk to the people that are way ahead of you, like have way improved their lifestyle, way beyond all of ours. And you meet them and you talk to them and it's like, they're satisfied. They feel whole. They feel at peace. They feel content. They feel full of joy. Their family is flourishing. No, no, that's not like, honestly, that's not the, the, the typical experience. But the main schema in our society is a lifestyle improvement plan where you just upgrade your lifestyle a little bit more, a little bit more. And that path, which begins with this optimism, starts leading towards some anxiety, eventually into some depression, some disillusionment, some shame, some embarrassment, some hiding, some numbing, some escaping that shame, escaping that embarrassment, finding ways to kind of be complacent, maybe kind of midlife crisis, you know, kind of change everything around, new job, new house, new city, new family, new whatever, try it again. Maybe if I give it another go, knowing what I know now, I'll do better. And you try it, try it again, give it another go, still doesn't work. And what you eventually begin to feel and get honest with is that you are weary and beat down. That the way of approaching life in this culture 
It's not leading to flourishing. It's not leading to joy. You're trying to build the Garden of Eden without the God. You're trying to bring paradise without the king of creation. You're trying to create life without the life giver, and it will never work. It will never work, and it's why Jesus came into this world, not just as, as a teacher of another way, but as God in flesh coming to reconcile humanity to the very presence of the God of life. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not just inviting people to a different way of living. He's inviting people to a different kind of relationship with the God of life. And that invitation extends right here today. And so when we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple, we said it is fundamentally, most clearly, it is a disciple is someone who's been reconciled to God by grace. Reconciled to God by grace. Jesus didn't come and look for the best of the best. He just came and looked for people that admitted, yes, the way that I've been living is leading to pain and destruction and death. The way that I've been going isn't working, and I can't fix it. I can't free myself from it. I feel stuck. I feel helpless. And Jesus comes and says, oh, that's who I'm inviting. Are you weary? Are you beat down? You feeling withering happening? That's who I've come for. I've come for people that have had enough of living that way. And I'm inviting you to a different way. I'm inviting you to me. Come to me. Not come to me best of the best. Not come to me those who come to church every Sunday. Not come to me those who memorize all their scriptures as a kid. Not come to me all those who are perfectly righteous and never make mistakes and have a healthy family and a good job. Great relationships with your neighbors. No brokenness. No pain. No addiction. He doesn't say, I'm looking for the best of the best. He says, I'm looking for you right there. If you can admit the way I've been running, the way we've been running is broken and it's leading to pain and anxiety and depression and fear and destruction. If you can just admit that and hear this invitation and say, come to me and I I will restore your life. I will bring restoration. It's not just rest. It includes a restedness, but it's a restoration of your soul that's found in relationship with Jesus. So Jesus offers this invitation, and it begins as a gracious invitation that is open and extended to every person in this space today. If you can just come to the place where you say, the way we've been running in our marriage, let's not run that way anymore. The way I've been running in life, the way I've been approaching career and relationships, I'm running and, I'm, and it's not working anymore. And you hear Jesus saying, come to me. Are you weary? Are you beat down? Are you weathered? Come to me. Come to me and I'll restore your soul. It starts with a reconciliation that's based on grace, not how well you've done, not your mistakes. And in that gracious relationship, there's healing, there's love, there's forgiveness. But there's also another way to live that this turning from the way we've been living to Jesus, the Bible word is repentance. And that word of repentance, which is just turning, it's most fundamentally changing the way you're thinking and turning your life. That turning, that repentance is repentance to a person, but also a repentance, a turning to a new way to live, which is why he says this right here in the Great Invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will bring restoration to your soul. Come to me. Listen to the next phrase. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Not from society, not from culture, not from generations gone by. Learn, Jesus says, learn from me. The word learn there is this Greek word mathete from which we get the word disciple. Learn a different way. 
Learn a different way. It's why in the Great Commission, Jesus talks about baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which signifies our union with God, our gracious entry into this relationship that's dominated by God's unconditional love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. We didn't get in by our effort. We don't get kicked out because of a lack of effort. It is an invitation of grace. Inside of that grace, Jesus is saying, learn a new way. And so he says it in the Great Commission, not just baptize them, teach them to obey everything I commanded. Not teach them to follow all the rules. And when they don't, kick them and make them feel like just the shame and guilt and less than. And that's what their society was doing that was beating people down, making people feel less than for breaking the rules. But Jesus does say, teach them another way, the way I taught you. My instructions for life, my approach. And so that invitation is to now, in this relationship, learn to be with Jesus and to follow his way. To be with Jesus and follow his way. And he taught us a lot about his way. So in church traditions, my own approach, I grew up in a Catholic church. And in that Catholic church, I, I, was, uh, I, was, I, was, I was a kind of Catholic that was like at church but didn't pay attention. So I think there are Catholics that pay way more attention than I did and that know way more about God and the Bible than I did. But I was a Catholic who didn't pay attention. I said the words, I did the things, and I went and I left. When I was first introduced to the gospel, I was introduced to the gospel and the good news about what Jesus had done to lay down his life for me, died on the cross, paid the penalty for my sin, rose again on the third day to give me reconciliation with God and eternal life. And I mostly felt like I came to Jesus for like heaven when I die. This thing way out there, that would matter maybe sometime if that whole thing turns out to be true. Uh, which I was like, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But saying this prayer, heaven when I die, is better than the alternative that I, like, I kind of presumed. And so I had this like, idea like, okay, I'm forgiven. I get to go to heaven when I die. And then it was like, do this stuff. I, I'm not saying that's the way my church taught me, but that's the way it like, made its way into my brain and understanding. It was like, I get to go to heaven when I die, and I'm supposed to do this stuff. What's that stuff? I'm supposed to like read the Bible in the morning. I'm supposed to, you know, tell my neighbors about Jesus and evangelize people. I'm supposed to, you know, go to church every time the doors open. I'm supposed to do these things. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do that. You know, all these kind of rules. And as much as I fell short of those rules, I felt shame and embarrassment. I hid those things. I carried shame all the way through my junior high years, all the way through my high school years, kind of pretending I was something on the outside, but feeling way different internally. I used all these escape tactics to run away from that shame and run away from that pain. And then I learned about the gospel of God's love for me, even in that space. And I learned about gospel-centered Christianity, where we learn about God's incredible love for us in those places. And that was real and true. And I felt forgiven and loved and accepted. And I felt God saw me. He saw the real me. He saw the broken me. He saw the shame in me. He saw all the ways I fell short, all the ways I was pretending to be something on the outside, even as a pastor that I wasn't on the inside. All my insecurities, all my fears, he saw all of it, and he loved me. And the freedom I began to feel was transformative. And then all the things about reading your Bible and praying, I'm like, don't put duty on me. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't tell me what to do. It's love, it's grace, it's gospel, it's love, it's grace, it's gospel. And almost the idea of like following the way of Jesus and obeying what he commanded now had no function in my life because I pendulum swung away from guilt and shame and legalism into this God loves me. So all those things that were such a huge piece of my past have no healthy function. And so the Great Commission 
Go make disciples of all nations. Teach people, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Great. I want people to know the love of God. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. I'm like, ooh, feels like legalism to me, Jesus. You know, uh, so you didn't learn. We learned that that doesn't work very good. And what does it mean to be a church where we uphold the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the freedom that God's love brings to us, where we learn we can be honest about all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our insecurities, and we find a freedom and a joy, and we learn inside that freedom and joy to obey and to follow everything he taught us. And we grow, and we make mistakes, and we feel like we veer away and we wander, and we remember his love, we remember his grace, and it's his grace that trains us to renounce those other ways and to live a whole new way. And that way of living requires effort. Dallas Willard famously said that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And that life, or following the way of Jesus, takes real thoughtfulness and intentionality in life, especially when our world is dominated by practices and habits and ways of living that perpetually pull us in a different way perpetually pull us in a different way. And so what we want to be thinking about as a church family, and I'll kind of spend a few minutes today talking about it, and we'll unpack it even more next week, is what does it mean to actually learn to be with him functionally and to learn to follow his way of life? What does it mean? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we grow in those ways? Because there are real ways we can grow. It's this invitation to a relationship, and inside that relationship, we're learning to be with him and to follow his way of life. I want to focus this morning on what does it mean to be with him? What does it mean to be with Jesus? The first century followers of Jesus would hear this invitation, and they were actually invited to like, leave their nets and their stuff and their families and to actually follow him around as apprentices. How do you apprentice under a leader you can't see? How do you follow an invisible leader? That's, it's an interesting question. I'm talking about following Jesus, following his way of life, but we don't see him. How do you do that? How do you do that in this world? How do we understand the presence of God through the Spirit? I want to read to you a quote um, from C.S. Lewis, a really powerful quote about just the importance of actually us rooting our life in this relationship with God. Look, listen, listen to this. This is from Mere Christianity. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, gasoline, British gasoline, uh, and, and, uh, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy on our own without bothering about religion or about the way of living. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. That true joy, true life, true happiness comes in communing with the God of life. I want to read this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, based on these same ways of thinking, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. 
our part in thus practicing the presence of God and following an invisible leader is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, practicing following the way of Jesus, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. That means as we're learning to follow him, when it feels new, like waking up in the morning and spending time with God, spending time in the middle of the day praying and redirecting your mind to God, taking time at the end of your day to reflect on God's presence, to confess ways you turn from him, experience his healing, his grace, to trust him, to pray to him, to walk with him. As we're learning to do that, the whole fabric of our life and of society is pushing us in a different direction. And these habits pull us in a more burdensome way, the way that leads to withering. So he says, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits. They're not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new and grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. I love that. I love that quote. I was getting counseling uh, about six years ago. I still get counseling, but I began about six years ago working through all these insecurities and shame that were beginning to kind of bubble outside the surface. I was beginning to see for the first time how much of my life, how much of my pastoral life was governed by and motivated by and dominated by insecurities and fears. And these are things and feelings and emotions I had, I had worked really hard subconsciously to avoid for a long time. And I remember my counselor in an early session said to me, I want you to take five minutes sometime this week and just be silent and be still. I'm like, done, easy, you know, what else? She's like, no, let's just start there. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And then you might feel like, man, you were really messed up. I'm like, yeah, it's really messed up. Like, I was here at that time. You're like, I went to church here at that time. You're like, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Apologies. Um, Human. And, uh, and I had so much, so much shame and so much insecurity and fear that I was just afraid to be still. And because I was afraid to be still, there were parts of my soul that I hadn't welcomed God's grace into, parts of my brokenness that hadn't come to him for forgiveness and healing and mercy, fears and insecurities that needed to, needed to be faced. And it was hard for me. It's hard for me. Little by little, as I learned about God's love, and as I learned to be honest and learn tools and practices to be still, to face my shame, to face my fears and my insecurities and my pain, as I did, I slowly began to experience healing in some of those areas. I haven't come anywhere close to arriving. I still work through all those core areas. But I have grown. I have grown. I like delight in slow, still time before God. I delight in we're being reminded of his love for me. I delight in bringing my brokenness to him honestly, and I enjoy bringing my brokenness towards community, community of grace honestly, because I find his love and the power of his grace to be transformative. I have been learning a new way. Long ways to go, but I have been learning a new way. Some of you have been learning a new way. You can. You can. We must take intentional steps. What are those steps? What are those steps? We'll take some more time next week talking more. But when we're talking about steps of putting God before our minds, steps of actually realigning, reorienting our life on a day-to-day basis, what does it actually mean to be with him? 
takes intentionality. Much like in a marriage, you can get married and have a marriage ceremony, and you can have no or you can lose very quickly a deep relational communion or intimacy with your spouse. You're still married, but you can totally lack intimacy, totally lack communion, totally lack the transformative grace and the covenant love that is so beautiful in a marriage. You can lack that. Well, how do you get to lack that? How does that happen? You don't take intentional steps to cultivate that relationship. So you can be married, and some in this room, you're in this space. I'm technically married, but I feel distant. I feel cold. There are wounds and pains and guilt and shame and, and, and fractures and distance, and there's maybe something that happened or maybe just time and not being intentional. Whatever it might be, doesn't mean there's no hope for you. You're married. There's a covenant of love inside that covenant to begin to do the work to heal that relationship, enjoy the, the beauty of a flourishing marriage, the beauty of a covenant, the beauty of a life-transforming relationship that's marked by grace and forgiveness and partnership. It's, it's possible. And the same is true in our relationship with God. You can be a Christian, but you can be living in ways that there's distance, there are chasms, there are brokenness and pain and, and shame that you carry that you think should keep you away from God. And God is saying, come to me, come to me, come back home. Come back home. There's healing. There's forgiveness. There's confession and repentance and change. But it means taking steps to work through those things. It means realigning your life, just like in a marriage, date nights, counseling, working through things, intentional conversations, connecting daily, praying together. These kinds of habits cultivate a healthy relational intimacy in marriage. And the same kind of habits can cultivate relational intimacy with God. What we're talking about as Christians is not be perfect, obey the rules, do it or else. It's what does it mean to be learning? If you're in your early stages of learning, welcome to the club. If you've never practiced some of these things, no sweat. God loves you. Remember the invitation is grace. Jesus stands here today and says, is the way you're living leading to weariness, beat down, weathered, pain? Come to me. Come to me. For those that did come to him, for those that came to Jesus, they were going to watch the way he lived, watch the way he loved, watch the way he served, watch the way he operated, watch the way he related to the Father, watch the way he withdrew to pray, watch the way he dealt with pain, physical pain, watch the way he dealt with rejection, watch the way he forgave, watch the way he treated his enemies, watch the way he treated people that were culturally different than him, watch the way he engaged with the marginalized and the oppressed, watch the way he prayed and ate and talked, they'd watch the way he lived. And as they watched him, they'd keep watching him until he marched his way up a hill to Calvary. And on Calvary, on this mountain, he would be beaten, betrayed. He was falsely accused, wrongfully condemned, and he was crucified. And in this crucifixion, Jesus isn't merely, he isn't merely setting for us an example of servant-hearted love. He's also atoning for us. He's actually creating a foundation, a new kind of foundation, a new covenant, we call it, a new way of relating to God, where your way of knowing God's love for you isn't contingent on how good you're doing or how bad you're doing at anything. It is entirely on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his atoning work on the cross for you. 
So that when you feel like you're withering, you feel shame, you feel like there are things I used to care about that I've veered away, or if people knew what I did, or if God knew what I did, he would never love me. That's not true. He knows exactly who you are, and he loves you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, securing us in this relationship of love where we experience transformation and healing, and we hear inside of the grace of this relationship an invitation to live a whole new way, a whole new way. And inside of that, we want to be a people that are learning more and more about God's love, how to root ourselves and ground ourselves in God's love. And we're going to learn as a people how to follow after everything he commanded us, how to follow the way of Jesus. I'm going to pray that God would do that among us. And we'll pray that he would transform our lives through it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come now and we pray for your grace and your healing and your transformation. For those who have felt beat down by religion, and even as we talk about practices, feel like a visceral kind of um, a visceral reaction to us talking about practical things, God, would you remind them of, their, of your love for them, that you do love them? As many in this room work through the pain of feeling beat down by religion, beat down by churches that were making them feel like you need to do more, you need to be more. God, that's the kind of stuff you came to set us free from. I pray you'd remind them of your love, that you'd root us and ground us in your love, but also that you'd help us in that place of rootedness, in that place of security in your love, to be the kind of people that are learning, that are learning a new way to be human, that you'd rehumanize us, and you'd help us to rehumanize the world. So we learn what it means to be human beings in communion with the God of the universe. As we learn to be human beings that are motivated by grace and mercy. As we learn the beauty and the transformative power of forgiveness. As we learn to come to you for healing, for freedom, for redemption from bondage. As we learn to abide in you, to walk with you, to keep you before our minds in the morning, in the daytime, in the evening, in our times in our household, eating breakfast, times at work, trying to serve for the common good of society, times in our evenings, relating to others and neighbors as we lay our heads on our pillow, that we would know your love, know your grace, know your presence, and that we'd, we'd be a people that are learning to flourish in the midst of this world. So God, would you pour out your grace on us now and would you teach us how to hold these things two together, your covenant love and your invitation to a better way to live. Help us learn to be with you and to follow your way of life. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media.
at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.